Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Mike Gaffari, general partner at Canvas Ventures, one of the premier early-stage thesis-driven funds invested in fintech, digital health, marketplaces, and new enterprise. Prior to Canvas, Mike was a general partner at Social Capital, and as an angel investor, some of his investments include Strava, Skip Scooters, Pocket, Atrium, Phil's Coffee, and Superhuman. He also has 10 years of operating experience as CEO of E24, VP of Business and Corporate Development at Yelp, Director of Business Development at TrialPay, and co-founder of Stitcher and Barmax. Quite a remarkable resume, if you ask me. In today's episode, we're going to be mostly focusing on how to evaluate online marketplace businesses. Mike has written a few articles on marketplaces for Forbes and on his Medium account. And for this episode, I would suggest checking out Mike's article, Where I'm Investing and 15 Marketplace Questions. The link is in the show notes. I learned a lot chatting with Mike, and I'm sure you will as well. So without further ado, here's Mike. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Very well. So so you've been a, the, the co-founder of Stitcher, the CEO of, of Eat24, and a successful angel investor, and now you're a GP at Canvas Ventures. So just take me a little bit inside your journey and what attracted you to working in startups, founding your own startup in the first place? Yeah, you know, I got the startup itch very young. I first started hacking uh, on computer games when I was about 12 or 13 years old and taught myself assembly language and programming then. So I've kind of had this fascination with technology and, you know, software, computers and apps in particular from a young age. And then when I, uh, when I went to college, uh, or actually in business school, I took a class on managing network businesses by this professor, Tom Eisenman, who did a lot of groundbreaking research in this area. You know, you sign up for this class, it's called network businesses. It sounds like it's, you know, something on Cisco or like routers. Uh, but I knew, I kind of learned that it was nothing of the sort. I think some students were surprised, actually, that it wasn't about um, that topic. Cisco was still an exciting company to a few people at the time, but actually it was about this concept. In particular, a lot of marketplaces uh, were covered. So uh, there's network effects like Facebook famously has where you have one-sided network effects. The more users are on Facebook, the more valuable it gets for every user. The seminal example he used was a fax machine. But the professor also introduced this concept of two-sided networks. Um, and those are you know marketplaces where uh, if you add supply and you add demand, it gets more and more valuable for the other side. They're called cross-side network effects. So that got me kind of interested there. So I kind of had the startup interest. I did my first startup in college. And then, but, you know, in business school, when I learned about these marketplace things, I got really fascinated with that. So, you know, that brought me to investing in that area as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I know you have over 10 years of operational experience. How important do you think is having operational experience as an investor? Yeah, it's a a great question. uh, And something I thought through quite a bit, you know, like, I graduated business school, and at first, I went to Summit Partners, which is a long and storied investment firm where I got great training and met some great people. But when I was there, I think I started there and I was 25 or 26 years old. I was very young because I'd gone to business school young. And I thought, man, I don't know how much value I can really add. Like if I ever served on the board of one of these companies, I would meet these 40-year-old and up founders and CEOs. And I thought, look, I think there are people who get there, you work their way up just purely through the finance route. But for me, 
for the kind of VC I wanted to be, I thought I'd like some more operating experience. I'd done a small startup in college, worked for a software company for most of my undergrad, but I hadn't really cut my teeth at big, you know, high growth venture backed businesses or really started meaningful companies on my own um, outside this college one. So I said, you know, A, I want to be an earlier stage VC, some of it was kind of growth fund, and B, I want to get more operating experience. I thought I would only do a few years of operating. The plan was to always kind of go back to investing, but I had much fun, largely Yelp. I spent 10 years um, operating. And then finally, I kind of went back into investing um, in 2017. And I think for me, it just, suits my personality. I, I really enjoy meeting new founders every day, learning about new business models, kind of getting to apply my brain in that way, instead of kind of just sticking with the same problem for years on end, which is as a founder, you have to have that level of perseverance for one idea. You can expand it and grow it, but you're really, really stuck to one idea, one market. And for me, it was kind of liberating to be able to look at lots of stuff and also to have an impact and help Lots of founders, this next, if there's anything now that I've learned, now that I did get all that experience, if I can share that and help founders on their journey, that's very rewarding for me. That makes a lot of sense. I understand that two of your main focuses in terms of investing are uh, consumer tech and marketplaces. What makes you excited about investing in consumer in this current climate? Yeah, well, one thing I think it's a great time to be investing in consumer because it's a contrarian time to be investing in consumer. So, you know, everyone especially now, you know, just even in the past couple months, what's happened in the public markets around unit economics, uh, gross margins, you know, pressure on Uber and Lyft, and, and everyone loves it. Meanwhile, you look at some of these um, enterprise software companies like Datadog and Zoom, and people are very excited. Uh, you know, they've been reminded what a high margin you can have in, in the software business and, and B2B software specifically. And so a lot of consumers and, you know, people, kind of the tourists who are just coming in, uh, to look for a flash in the pan consumer startup, they've kind of shaken out. But this is where some really exciting consumer startups could be built. Uh, and if you look historically, by the way, the same has been true every economic cycle. is Every time people kind of have soured on consumer internet, some of the best, most interesting concepts have been built right around that time. You know, after the kind of 2001 dot-com bubble burst, a lot of interesting startups came out right after that. You know, uh, Yelp, which I'm very close to, that idea started in 2004, just a, a couple of years after that market meltdown. And then you know, LinkedIn, YouTube, several others followed, and then Facebook, of course. Even though counterintuitively, it's not a great uh, time for some consumer software businesses in the, in the public markets, it's actually, uh, you know, could be a better time than ever at the seed and series A stage. Got it. Wow. Thank you. As you know, I wanted to focus our conversation on marketplaces since you've written a lot of material on the subject. So let's start off with what is a marketplace? Yeah. So I'd say a marketplace is anytime you've got uh, two sides in a two-sided network uh, and they're, they're matching together. And, and by the way, we're talking about online marketplace business models, usually to use kind of a, a more wordy term, but people usually shorten that to marketplaces. Uh, and so you're in these online marketplaces, you're, you're using software, be it a mobile app or a website or something else, and you're matching these two sides to help them transact. Oftentimes they're called supply and demand. There's three rough categories you could put these in. So the classic one is matching supply and demand for buyers and sellers. That started with eBay. The really interesting data point a lot of people don't realize, uh, and I've written about this, is Amazon is actually no, now more than 50% of the revenue comes from the marketplace business model, not the traditional 
online retail. So eBay, people were very excited. It was supposed to be you know, one of the biggest companies ever, and it did grow very well. Amazon eclipsed it, but not eventually not the pure Amazon model. It was actually, in a way, eBay's thesis had the last laugh because this Amazon marketplace of opening up to other buyers and sellers became a bigger business. So that's this kind of product marketplace, right? Or you've got, or, you know, tickets with StubHub, you can think of a bunch of different categories, but there are also this large category of services marketplaces. So, you know, those can be, you know, particular kind of labor, 1099 contractors or other forms of services like Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, and many others, where you get matched to a service provider who can help you out. And then finally, whether you put this in the kind of product or service bucket or you create a new category of its own, there is a a rental marketplace or just matching someone uh, with something they want on demand that's not somebody's labor nor a simple product like Airbnb. So, hey, I want to be matched with, uh, you know, a, a place to rent. By the way, those are the consumer marketplaces. You're focused on consumer and where, you know, and that's what most people are aware of. There's also another category we can talk about and, and save a letter, which is uh, B2B marketplaces. And, you know, for example, enterprise labor marketplaces uh, like nurses and matching nurses with hospitals. But we can focus on the consumer ones. And that's those are, frankly, the larger ones now and what people are most familiar with. Got it. Thank you. And I appreciate all the examples and and, and your breakdowns. Uh, so what what makes marketplaces such uh, attractive uh, businesses to invest in for venture capitalists? Well, this is a cool thing. I had no idea when I was taking this class, I think it was in like 2004 or five, I'm taking this managing network business class with, with Tom Eisenman. And I don't think I was taking the final exam on network effects uh, and, and looking at early marketplace business models. And I didn't realize what an impact this would have later in my career. Uh, but I was learning the academic framework then that, that I saw in the real world later. There's just a lot of stickiness and lock-in. When you build up a lot of supply, um, you know, we can take the Uber Lyft duopoly, for example. It's exceedingly hard, and many have tried, to come in and create a new marketplace for on-demand drivers. Because Uber and Lyft, and that's an interesting case where two of them ran really quickly and got it, but they were able to run so fast that if you're thinking about, you know, you're a, you're a passenger and you want to ride, even though it would only really take you like 60 seconds to go download another ride-sharing app, maybe, you know, put in some details and try and hail a ride, you won't even do that modicum of effort, 60 seconds of effort to be exposed to, to marginally some more drivers. Even if it was like 5% more drivers, you probably wouldn't do it because you're covered with Uber and Lyft. They have such a critical share of the supply of the drivers on the network that you know that's the place to check. And it's not even worth like 60, 60 seconds of your time. In fact, there's some people that might only go to Uber because they're a little bit larger and they won't even check Lyft and vice versa. Some people develop an affinity to other. Similarly, for uh, on the supply side and the drivers, they're thinking, well, why would I go drive for some other service and like run this app and try and find passengers? All the passengers have just come on to, you know, to Uber or Lyft. And so you get this kind of catch 22 for any new entrant or a chicken and the egg problem is how are they going to jumpstart supply and demand? The early market entrants um, or whoever, it's, it's not always first mover, but first to scale for a marketplace gets the advantage. And that's why in this um, environment of abundant capital, You've seen companies really raise to, or to rush to raise money very quickly so they can be, even if they're not the first mover, the first to scale because they know how important that is. And once you get that supply and demand, you just have such strong defensibility. And so as an investor or an entrepreneur trying to start businesses or, or invest in companies, you really like defensibility because that's what's going to lead 
to a large enduring you know public company to to provide a return uh, for your for your dollars or your labor as opposed to a lot of other business models that have far less defensibility uh, are prone to being kind of copied and ripped off pretty easily uh, and those businesses are just less interesting to invest in. I love what you say in terms of uh, you know evaluating switching costs for consumers for first to scale of you know downloading a new app that's not um, Uber and Lyft and uh, and and same for the driver to uh, to run through a new interface. And the funny part there is like in business school, switching costs we'd look at would be more real. It would be like you know with the the fax machine, which is a one sided network, not a marketplace, but it was like, hey, if you're going to switch to a totally different protocol and you have to buy new hardware, like there were there were much larger switching costs. The crazy part is even as switching costs have got down to this small units of time or effort, they're basically free. It shows you how sticky these things are because people don't even want to put, you know, tiny switching costs. You, you have to really, really be frictionless and have zero switching costs to get people to switch. And it's very rare to have true zero switching costs. That's a great point. That's a great point because the switching costs really aren't that much just because as you said, it only takes a few seconds to download an app and actually go and, uh, and you know, maybe present your credit card information. You wrote a great article. Well, one of many great articles, uh, but but the one I wanted to focus on was um, the 15 marketplace questions uh, that you had. Uh, I believe that a founder or investor should be asking themselves when analyzing marketplace opportunities. Would you mind highlighting just each of those 15 questions? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, and by the way, if you want to just kind of follow along, you can go, um, if you're listening to this, you can go on Medium, just search my name and marketplace checklist uh, or marketplace questions, and, and you'll find this this article. And basically, I say, okay, if you are going to analyze a marketplace business, um, you know, what are some top questions you want to ask? One of the first ones I start with that's often overlooked is which side of the network values the other side more? You know, to, to put it a different way, it's important to realize when the demand side of the network values the supply side more. Because in that case, it's all about bringing on supply when you want to scale your business. And Uber is just like this. You know, Uber, I was friends with the head of growth for Uber, and he was trying to get more demand. And he said, you know, I've realized I should just stop trying to get demand and almost all my effort should be trying to get supply, trying to get drivers. Because if I can get the drivers, the passengers will follow. And that's a clear indicator um, that uh, one side, in this case, the demand values the supply more. And what you do in that situation is you typically subsidize the supply side, that, uh, that more highly valued side. So since these drivers are, val I mean, since the passengers are driving, are valuing these drivers, you want to pay like Uber and Lyft famously did. You make these, you know, $500 guarantees say, please come on our network. That's going to get the supply jump started so that you can now get demand. One of the questions that I thought was very interesting was about a proprietary method of distribution. Would you mind just elaborating the importance of proprietary method of distribution? Absolutely. And I think a classic case for this is, you know, I was at Yelp for seven years and then we acquired uh, a company called Eat24. And we met E24 when they were a tiny little company. I first got to know the founders. I think they were under 10 people in the team, under a million dollars in gross transaction revenue. And then we partnered with them. We said, hey, we're going to launch a transaction platform at Yelp for a lot of marketplace startups, actually. These local on-demand marketplaces that wanted an, uh, the ability to have their users transact right within the Yelp app. So with E24, a food delivery app, you could find a restaurant on Yelp, and without ever leaving the Yelp app, you could order food delivery powered by E24. E24 would go sign up the restaurants and the supply. Yelp had those users. So Yelp was this really interesting proprietary method for distribution. And the interesting thing is this tiny little company got on our platform, and pretty soon, 
uh, they became our largest platform partner and Yelp became their number one new source of users. Over 30, 40% of new users were coming directly from Yelp. That didn't even count all the indirect transactions they were getting, which were maybe a majority from Yelp. That drove down their blended cost of acquiring users significantly. If you're coming in the horse race in any consumer app, forget about marketplaces, I mean, you know, including marketplaces, but any consumer app, and you're just having to pay the market rates on Facebook or Google to acquire users, you're going to get crushed. You need, by definition, when you're in front of the consumer, you need some kind of proprietary distribution model. You know, we learned this at Stitcher, uh, and we did it through partnership and other means, and we could talk about that later too. Uh, but it was exceedingly difficult. But E24, getting back to this story, they had it locked in with this Yelp thing. And so by the time we acquired the company a, a few years later, they'd actually reached, you know, gone from that 1 million or less to 150 million in gross transaction volume annualized and 150 employees. Uh, then they asked me to be CEO of the company as a subsidiary of Yelp. And we grew to 700 million in gross transaction volume in two years uh, and 500 employees. And again, this was all because we had this special distribution model. So, I mean, I, I can give you many other examples, but I think it, it's really, really critical that you find a way to, to get in front of your users, uh, you know, in, in some way that not everybody has. Uh, now, one caveat with my checklist, I put this checklist out there. Not every business checks the box on every single question with flying colors. It's more like, you know, for out of 15 questions, if you can do really well on 10 of those 15, that's really compelling. If you don't have good answers for, you know, 12 out of the 15, that's when you start asking yourself, hey, do I have this particular marketplace figured out? But it's not like you're going to get 100%. Uber, for example, you know, didn't at the get-go have an obvious, unique distribution model. They were just referring friends. They, they, they really harnessed the power of referrals, and that helped. I don't know how unique you would call that. Maybe it is. Um, but part of it was they were just a better mousetrap, and there weren't a lot of alternatives. And people couldn't find taxis in key cities like San Francisco and say so they just jumped on it. So do you mind also just, just talking a little bit about cross-side and same-side network effects and the uh, distinguishing the differences? Yeah. So the next question I asked is how strong are cross-side network effects? And is there a metric that can measure that? How's that tracked over the last year? And there's also this concept of same-side network effects. Cross-side network effects are the supply and demand where one side of the market, you know, like the the E24 restaurants valued the fact that users were coming on E24. And then the flip side is, you know, the, the, the users value the restaurant. So that's a cross-side network. You add a new restaurant, the users are happy. Hey, more dining options. You add a new uh, user and the restaurants are happy. Hey, more revenue, more, more eyeballs, more mouths to feed. Or that's cross-side. Same side is like this fax machine example I was giving. It, there's not a two-sided thing. It's just the more users have fax machines, uh, the more valuable your fax machine is because you can fax more people. Now, that's an old example. A lot of founders today maybe have never even touched a fax machine. Um, but Facebook is a really good example for this. Yeah. The more people that are on Facebook, the better the product is, right? You, there's more people to connect with. Now, there's all these interesting questions. So one question you want to ask yourself is how strong the same side network effects are. Are there diminishing returns on it? For example, um, with Uber, at some point, you don't care about having too many drivers. On same-side network effects, like with Facebook, uh, there could be, you know, like diseconomies of scale, uh, if you think about it from, from a user perspective, uh, where you don't want actually your mom to be necessarily connected to you on Facebook, right? Or, or, or that, that aunt, uh, you know, that you don't always keep in touch with. Like, it, there, you know, some people get off the network and then they start getting more on Instagram or trying something else. Um, so, and actually in a marketplace, you see this sometimes where the same side network effect could be negative actually. 
So for more drivers, I, I frequently are, will hear Uber drivers complaining that Uber let too many drivers on the network and they're hoping there are going to be some limits and, and there are some safeguards in place. Um, so that's interesting to see how the same side might actually be a negative effect um, in a marketplace. Wow, that's really interesting. I never really thought about the negative same side network effects. What are maybe one or two questions for those that are interested in starting marketplaces? What are maybe one or two questions that you think that founders might have overlooked or haven't thought about? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give two. Um, one is, you know, there's all these obvious ones that you should ask yourself that I think most people have done. Like, what's the frequency of use for your demand and supply side? You can measure that in like transactions per month. What's the average transaction size for demand and supply? What's your take rate and what's a sustainable take rate over time? Uh, does it get easier to acquire incremental supply and demand as the marketplace grows? That's a good sign. If not, if it's getting harder to acquire incremental supply and demand, you should ask yourself why that is. You know, should you focus on one or two geographies or categories to get started where you can get like a critical mass tipping point, strong network effect there and grow? So there's, you know, do you have like an initial market winning strategy and then how do you scale? These are all like the basics. But two more nuanced things that I see a lot of founders mix, miss. Uh, I'd say one is... We talked about those cross-site network effects. Do you have a metric that can measure um, how that's tracking over time? For example, there's a company, Hubhouse, that I invested in, and they match people their marketplace to match renters, people who want to live in an apartment or a shared house. And they say, hey, instead of like in San Francisco, for example, a really expensive apartment, even if you split it one, two, or three ways, what if I could just go live in like a five bedroom house with five or six other people? A, it can be more economical, but B, more importantly, you can have the sense of community. So how would a business like that match its network effects? So it's matching houses with, with people and renters. Uh, and one way you could do it is you say, well, when somebody moves because they need to, to switch their housing arrangement and you measure their NPS, they're happy. They're, it's not somebody who's unhappy, but it's somebody who's happy, uh, but they, they just need to move. Maybe they change jobs from the East Bay uh, in, within the Bay Area, you know, they used to be working in, uh, you know, uh, somewhere like Emeryville, and now they're going to go work in San Jose, way south. It's too far to drive, and they were living in these space, and now they need to move down there. Do they stay in the house hub house network, and do they switch to another hub house, or uh, do they leave the hub house network entirely? Uh, and the interesting thing is, even though hub house is only a few markets, and a lot of people move somewhere, you know, where hub house isn't even an option. We tracked that metric and it went from like 1%, very low when the company started, to like, you know, 10% and kind of beyond. And, you know, that's really interesting to say, hey, people are staying with this hub. Like they, even though they, they're moving, they're staying in our network. I think every business, every marketplace actually has a metric like that. It's just unique to each and they need to find it. Like, how do you measure the network effect? Um, so that's one. Number two, which is kind of related and is also you could, you know, uh, develop a metric for it is how do you measure liquidity for your marketplace? And there's a, a, a lot that's been written on this. There's an article recently, if you do a, do a search online for like marketplace liquidity um, that I didn't write, but someone else did. Um, and, you know, one, one simple metric, like if you think about eBay, it's, okay, somebody posts something to sell. How quickly can that person uh, actually get that transaction closed? Or you go on to buy something, you know, um, reflexively, and how long does it take uh, for you to find what you want to buy? Uber is a great one. It, the, the minutes for you to arrive, that's the critical metric, right? That's a huge liquidity metric. If it's over 10 minutes, that means there's not good supply liquidity, um, you know, and it, it's harder for transactions to clear. If it's down to two, three minutes, 
Uber's metrics in that market actually skyrocket. And, and that's what true liquidity looks like. So again, you have to custom tailor that for your business model. What, how do you think for, for marketplaces, how do you think about you know, product market fit? Because of course, you have to look on both sides, the supply side and the demand side. Yeah. So I'd say number one is that do you have this effective method for distribution, right? Ideally proprietary. And you know, as I point out in this checklist, it's for each side of the network. So it's not enough to just say, hey, I can get a bunch of demand. Like I can get a bunch of users onto my app. Can you actually get supply uh, and both sides of the network? I think that's key. If you can do it in a repeatable way, both organically and maybe through some paid channels as well, but you show that it's at a reasonable cost and you can show the lifetime value of these users on both sides. In marketplaces, we have what we call like a fully loaded LTV to CAC. You know, so not just your normal, you know, sometimes people will say, hey, here's my cost to acquire a user on the demand side, but they completely neglect. And then they say, here's the lifetime value of that user. But they might've completely neglected to mention that they spent a lot of money to get the supply side to service that demand side user. So if you actually have fleshed a lot of this stuff up and then you're getting liquidity, um, and then, you know, at series A, you're usually looking for at least a million, if not, you know, single digit millions in gross transaction volume on the marketplace side. Ideally, another sign of product market fit is that you've actually uh, managed to have a take rate you as a marketplace are providing enough value that you're taking, let's say, 10% um, as E24 did in the early days and then or Grubhub was doing around 16%, um, you know, a few years ago. But you've actually got, you know, Uber has been 20% and, and moved around. So you've got somewhere in that neighborhood. It's always a question of product market fit when there's a marketplace, but they're not taking a take rate yet because you don't know if the users on both sides actually value the marketplace enough to be willing to to let them have that take rate. So in terms of for, for marketplaces, uh, you could have, you know, a high frequency number of uh, transactions, but, you know, small, but small amount in terms of the actual transaction side. Uber, right? Right, right. Or, you know, small amount of transactions, but large uh, transaction sizes. Airbnb. Right, right. And so what what do you think, and maybe, and maybe there isn't, isn't a real answer, but what do you think when you're analyzing marketplaces uh, is, is more valuable? I would say ultimately frequency is probably a little more valuable and I'll tell you why. I'll invest in a marketplace with high frequency but low transaction. You know, like let's say another Uber style model, you know, Uber's gross margin, you know, issues that, that everyone likes to talk about in the press these days, notwithstanding. If a marketplace has too low of a frequency, no matter how large the transaction size is, it's tough to develop that stickiness with your users because they're not doing repeat transactions. They almost forget your brand. Like if you're going to buy something on that marketplace only every few years, or or you're only going to have a reason to look at it every few years, it's going to be much harder. But Airbnb, for example, you still might travel uh, and they put out stats on this, you know, uh, a few times a year, it's enough. And especially on the supply side, you're, you're renting out to people all the time. So Airbnb has got the level of frequency that works, even if it's not as frequent as, as Uber. And then, but you know, there are, there are counterexamples to this. You can work, um, you know, I invest in fly homes, which is not strictly a marketplace, but fly homes is a really interesting consumer, um, you know, app that's helping reinvent the home buying process. They help people, especially first time home buyers make an all cash offer on a home, for example. And that way they can get much more certainty to close in, 
you know, um, tight markets like San Francisco, Seattle, where they launched, or, um, you know, even where you are in LA or New York, other places they haven't launched yet, but you can imagine those dynamics. They also help people get a, a, give a guaranteed offer on their current home if they're trading up to a new home. And then that way they have confidence to be able to know what they can afford and trade up to the next home. So they provide this great service. But if you think about it, when you're moving homes, you don't do that that often. It's not going to be multiple times a year, certainly. Hopefully not every year that you're doing a home transaction. But it's a big enough purchase. It's so important that even if it's every few years, several years, they can stay top of mind. So there are exceptions to frequency, but in a lot of categories, uh, if you're too low frequency, that could be the kiss of death. That, I, I hadn't thought about before in terms of uh, the value of the actual uh, frequency of transactions. How do you think about online customer acquisition costs for marketplaces in this current climate, considering you have this duopoly with Facebook and Google, and, and with marketplaces, you have two CACs on the supply and demand sides? Yeah. So number one is don't be reliant on just Google and Facebook. If you are, you're in trouble. Um, and so there's a two-step process. Number one, develop organic proprietary models of distribution. You know, for Yelp had SEO, you know, E24 we talked about through like partnership and integration into Yelp. So it could be BD, it could be um, other kinds of organic things, partner marketing, uh, you know, a dedicated user base and email list. There's many, many ideas uh, that you can come up with on the organic side, but that's really important. Um, and, and the more proprietary, the better. And then... Number two is experiment with other paid channels. Don't just stick, you know, and I, and I help a lot of founders with this. Don't just stick with Google and Facebook. E24 published a great article on the kind of breakup with Facebook when Facebook rates were getting too high and it got a lot of press attention. Um, and we still came back eventually to experimenting there. Uh, but it, you know, it was very, there's all kinds of offline marketing and other channels are getting more and more measurable every day. TV, outdoor, radio, print, um, mailers, uh, and, and, you know, other, other digital channels as well outside of those two. So I think in every era, every company that's been built um, and has done paid marketing has found unique sources of paid marketing that everyone else wasn't picking up on. Because if you're just paying the market rates for that, that duopoly that you described, Google and Facebook, you're going to get hosed. It's not going to be a winning game. Right. What are some of the challenges in analyzing you know, B2C marketplaces versus uh, B2B marketplaces? B2B marketplaces, uh, it's just very different. One is you're not going to get the kind of consumer mindshare that you're going to get with B2C marketplaces. So you've got um, to find new marketing channels. You know, we were just talking about you've got to you got to think about like, okay, do I have a sales model where essentially I'm doing sales in the supply side? And then how do I find the demand? You know, in this nursing example, like how am I going to tap into millions of nurses? How am I going to sell into hospitals? It's just a very different, sometimes some of these, are, you know, call themselves SaaS enabled marketplaces. And sometimes they behave a little bit like SaaS companies as well. Um, it's a, it's a different kind of animal uh, than the typical consumer playbook for B2C. So what are some of the qualities that you look for in founders when you're analyzing companies, especially at the early stages when you might not have a ton of data to go off? Yeah. I mean, this is a, a great question. And I think so much of it when you're evaluating, evaluating a company at Series A is, uh, is the founder. Uh, so I'd say number one, tenacity slash like grit. Uh, perseverance, whatever you want to call it, but I look for that in their personality. And it's both with their current startup, but you can look for a lot of these, you have to, you know, you reference check, you ask around, you look for things even when they were younger to see the, the total profile of the person. And that tenacity is extremely important because I've been there. 
it is a hard, hard job. You're constantly going to be banging your head against the wall. Um, the analogy my co-founder at Stitcher gave me uh, that, that others have used is it's kind of like rolling a boulder up a very steep hill. And every time you push it, you know, one step forward, it feels like it rolls two steps backwards. And now you're even lower and huge rock you can picture just in front of you crushing you. The amazing thing is eventually you might hit a tipping point where it just feels like you're rolling downhill and it gets that much easier and then you get momentum. That's the growth phase and you raise a big round, you pour money, pour money into it, add um, fuel to the fire. But uh, at Series A, they're, they're rolling up that boulder for a very long time. So tenacity is key. Number two is expertise in an area. Ideally, the you know area around their startup, maybe they have some technical expertise or some business expertise. Um, Maybe they've just recently developed that expertise uh, and because and more what I'm, I'm looking for is not that one area, but the ability to quickly develop uh, an expertise in something and get obsessed with an idea or a discipline or a field. And so you can also, if they're new to the, the startup they're doing, um, you can look at, uh, again, through the, the rest of their history before you find the founder, ask them what they've, what else they've become obsessed with and thrown themselves into. And if they have this tendency to be a self-learner, uh, that's, that's very critical. Number three is just signs of an outlier. I mean, I've, I'm, a, you know, repeat founder, founders, myself included, like we're weird people. It's not, you're not your normal people. If founders are normal people, we'd have a lot more founders and a lot less like employees. Um, there's a reason a, a tiny fraction of the population are founders um, and successful founders, you know, are even even less. And so you're looking for a spiky personality that's, all, you know, uh, I've seen founders who almost seem like they're purposely trying to be quirky. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but but you do look at the, the person's whole life story and you say, does this person seem like an outlier in some way? It's not always, you know, test scores and raw intelligence. That's like one path that some people have. But um, or, you know, being a, a prodigy or something like that. But it, there's other signs that the person just stands out and they're not the norm. They think differently. They think outside the lines, hopefully, you know, ethically and legally, but they think outside the lines of, of current accepted norms. Yeah, I think those are some great points. What are some consumer trends or oppor- and opportunities that you're excited about? I'd say two big ones. Um, one, just, you know, as is obvious from uh, the rest of the talk is the next generation of big on-demand consumer marketplaces. So you might call that marketplaces 3.0. Like I said, I think these could be hiding um, in plain sight, right under, and everyone's kind of focused on B2B more. And and by the way, I'm also very interested in these B2B marketplaces. Uh, we're seeing this explosion in labor marketplaces, but I, marketplaces 3.0, if 1.0 was eBay, um, 2.0 was, you know, Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, um, and that cohort. I think there's going to be a 3.0, whether that comes from a platform shift, which is not obvious what the next big platform shift, or, you know, there was desktop web, there was mobile. Um, it's not obvious the next platform shift yet. So it might be another trigger, but I think that's really interesting. And then number two, where I've been spending a lot of time uh, with my fly home series B investment. And then before that, the uh, hub house investment, cloud kitchens that we invested in social capital, uh, real estate related software and technology. Um, you know, some people call it prop tech, but I think there's a lot of interesting consumer stuff you see now. There's going to be kind of an explosion. It's such a very, very large and inefficient market, such a huge asset class. And I think we're just scratching the surface of, you know, Zillow and Trulia, Redfin, where the kind of early wave and now you've seen a bunch of new models, but I think there's many more to come. That's awesome. What's, what's something that you would uh, change when it came to venture capital? The, the speed and the kind of a transparency around process and how it works. I feel like so much of this is so opaque. 
to entrepreneurs that go and they email, you know, they'll get ghosted by their VC, right? And they don't know what happened and they don't know why, you know, and, and, and founders will consistently say that a quick no is so much better than like a slow drawn out, you know, who knows, maybe. Um, and yet it, it it's as if some investors are really making it hard for founders. They want to make them jump through hoops and, and make that. And I think sometimes they might not realize, I think having been on the other side and having been a founder myself, uh, and having been, you know, strung along before, I, I understand how valuable a quick answer is and quick feedback and, you know, iterating with folks. So, of course, I'll, I'll get burned. I, I'm sure a, a founder who I haven't been, uh, you know, one week, maybe I was sick or something, and they'll say, hey, you didn't move as fast as you could have with me. We can't always be lightning fast, but I do think I do think the industry is still way behind where it needs to be in terms of accountability and the pace. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and just a bit of a follow-up question to that. When a venture capital fund uh, tells a founder, uh, you know, we love, uh, we love you as a founder, we love the product you're building, however, we need a lead investor in order to invest, what should be the founder's uh, reaction to that? Well, so I think there's two, there's, this is a, we have to break this down into like seed stage and then like series A, B stage. Generally at series A or B, you should only be speaking with investors for the most part who could lead you around. You probably shouldn't even waste your time with them. So if, you know, it, that should just be a qualifying question before you even get an intro to the investor is like, do they lead rounds? And, and typically they'll take board seats. If the answer is no, you can talk to those folks later to fill out your round and oftentimes you might talk to like friends of your series A if you want to, but it's, it's a waste of time because there's so many, I mean, that's what we as series A investors typically are in the business of. There is a kind of a series A crunch right now because there's been an explosion of seed capital an explosion of growth capital, but in the middle of series A and B, there hasn't been as large of a growth relative to those two other stages. Um, but you should be looking for firms like us and partners like me who will make that investment, take that board seed. At the seed stage, I will say it's a little bit different um, because there are these what are called party rounds where there's no real lead. It's beyond the scope of our conversation to get in the whole debate of like pros and cons of these party rounds. Uh, but maybe, you know, there's some investors asking that where it's a fair question. Some, some people will advise you that, Hey, if an investor asks you who else is in, you shouldn't talk to that kind of investor. Um, and some investors pride themselves on like being able to say yes in the first meeting. Uh, again, at series eight is less relevant because they should be doing independent work. And at seed, it really depends on you as a founder. Sometimes, it helps the seed investor understand, um, you know, the landscape better. So I'd say it's tricky. There are some times where a seed round would make the most sense to have an anchor tenant, that kind of lead, and then maybe you fill it with others. And maybe that's a fair question for an angel investor or a smaller seed fund to ask. Now, since, as you said, there's an explosion in seed and explosion of growth, how, is that a good thing uh, for you since you're focused on uh, series A? Except for the fact that, you know, it's uh, keeping me out late uh, a lot of nights and early mornings and like uh, makes it harder to see my kids and stuff. Like outside of the frenetic pace of being very busy, um, it's a great thing for a series A and B investor. Uh, it does cause valuations to get a little nutty sometimes because that later stage stuff, you know, everything kind of gets pushed up. So that that is a challenge. It's, there might be a correction and, and it, it, you know, that, that does get tougher, but overall it, it, it's good for the series A and B investor to have more inbound on the seed seed stuff coming in uh, as it matures to A and then more opportunities later to help raise growth capital. Yeah. I can see how a series A crunch would keep you really, really busy. 
What's, what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you both professionally and personally? Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll give two. It's an easy one is, uh, give and take by Adam Grant, but about being a giver, uh, and how you can, you can still be successful. You can give without giving everything and, and, you know, getting taken advantage of that was always innately to my nature, kind of a giver and giving a lot of my time and energy to friends and colleagues. Um, and it was nice to see that you can kind of build a career around that. So I really like that. Um, and that's kind of my model of venture. And then another one is Drive by Dan Pink, which is one of the, of the few books I've ever found on the study of kind of human motiv- motivation uh, and how to give people autonomy. And it, it's probably my top management book recommendation for people who are new managers or executives who haven't read it. So that's on the book. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know you have to you have to jump, but thank you so much, Mike, once again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. And there you have it. It was an absolute blast having Mike on the show, and I really appreciate him taking the time. If you'd like to follow Mike, you can do at New Mike. I'll have a few of his articles as well in the show notes for those that want to dive deeper into marketplaces. You're also welcome to follow me along behind the scenes at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. If you enjoyed this episode, which since you're still listening, I hope you have, I would appreciate it if you'd write a quick review on the Apple Podcast app. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, folks.